I want to begin this morning by putting up on the screen a picture that includes me, but also it's the five most important people in my life. That is my family. That's my wife and my four children, and I am a blessed individual. God has been so good to me in providing me the family that God's given to me. And before I am anything else in life, I am a husband and I am a father. And the highest calling on my life and the greatest privilege of my life and the greatest responsibility of my life is to those five people right there. My wife and I take very seriously that calling that God's given us to raise our children and disciple our kids in their love relationship with Jesus. And like any of you that walk through that journey, there are are ups and there are downs. None of us are perfect at that. But we take very seriously that calling and that responsibility to come alongside of our children. Just like John wrote in 3 John, when John said, I have no greater joy than to hear of my children walking in the truth. As a parent that loves Jesus, there is no greater joy than seeing your kids walking with God. And as a mom and dad who own that, that privilege and that calling before God, one of the ways that we've tried to nurture and raise our children is to understand the blessing of being a part of a family. Being a part of a family is a great, great, precious blessing. But we've tried to help them understand as we've raised them that with the blessing of belonging to a family comes the responsibility of being in the family. We all know that to be true, right? If you agree with that, say amen. It's a blessing to be in a family, but with that blessing comes the responsibility that each of us own, and the family is only as successful and blessed as they are everyone owning their responsibility to the family. Now, there's one exception to that, right? I mean, there's one exception to this idea that everybody in the family has a responsibility, and that exception is babies, right? (laughs) There's one member of the family who gets all of the blessing with none of the responsibility, right? And we call them babies. Say it with me. Babies, right? Babies in the family don't have any responsibility, but man, they get all the blessing that goes with being a part of the family. Why are you sharing that with us, Pastor? Let me tell you why. Last weekend, we began a series at Hope that I believe personally could be one of the most significant series we ever study through together as a church family. As far as the opportunity for it to impact us as a fellowship together. The series we began last weekend is simply entitled, I belong. I belong. And we gave you last weekend a clarifying statement that I want to put back up on the screen, and I want you to read it out loud with me because it's so important to understanding everything we're going to say in this series. Look at it. Let's read it together. One, two, three. 
Church is not an event we attend. Church is a family to which we belong. I want you to let that sink in for a minute. That needs to simmer. It needs to marinate in our heart. Think about how you think about church. Do you go to church or do you belong to a church? If you just go to church, church is just an event that you attend. But if you belong to a church, you understand that church is not an event we attend. It's a family to which we belong. And I'll just be the first to give a testimony today and say, I consider myself extremely blessed to be a part of the Hope Church family. My family is so grateful that God put us here. My prayer is that the Lord will let me go to heaven from right here in the Hope Church family. I love this family of faith. But with this family of faith comes certain responsibility. You see, because we belong to the family, there are responsibilities that go with belonging. There's an epidemic in the church in America today. You know what that epidemic is? The church in America today, by and large, is filled with babies. We want all the blessing of being a part of the family. We want all of the privilege. We want the ministry to be exactly the way we want it. We want people to be there right when we need them. We want every resource to be available to meet every particular need. We want all of the blessing, but we don't want any of the responsibility that goes with belonging to the family. Church is not an event that we attend. Church is a family to which we belong. And we're not to simply be babies in the family. We're to own the responsibility of belonging. You say, where does the Bible talk about this? Well, over 40 different times in the New Testament, from Jesus to Paul to Peter to John, over 40 times in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit of God inspired a power phrase that describes how you and I are to relate to one another, the responsibilities we have to each other in the family of God. You know what the phrase is? It's the phrase, one another. Over 40 times in the New Testament, the Bible uses this phrase, one another, to describe our responsibilities to each other as we live out fellowship with God in the midst of his family. Now, our pastoral team here at Hope, a few months ago, we took three days and we went up to the mountains up in Utah. And for three days, all we did was process these 40 one another statements in the New Testament. For three days, all throughout the day, we took these 40 statements and we lived with them and we prayed over them. And we ask God to do something in our fellowship around these 40 statements. 
we ask God to move because what we're going to unpack for you in this series is not just information where you can go, oh, I see that, I'm going to do that. No, what we're really asking God to do is a deep work of transformation that changes who we are as a church and how we relate to one another as the family of God. So we took the 41 another's, and here's what we did. We reduced them down to five umbrella statements. And we think all 40 of the one another's fall under these five statements. This weekend and for the next four weeks, we're going to unpack these five statements that are drawn from these 41 another's in the New Testament. So we're going to begin today with the one of these one another statements that is mentioned 17 different times in the New Testament. Of the 40 plus, 17 of them are the same thing repeated over and over and over and over again. Anybody have a clue what the first one is? Love one another. Say it together. Love one another. Over 17 times we're told this in the New Testament. I want to give you a statement, this first statement, and we're going to give you five of these over the course of this series. Here's the first one, love. Now I want you to read the statement with me. One, two, three. Because I belong, I am responsible to love others as Christ has loved me. If you have your Bible... Turn to John chapter 13. There are 17 places we could have gone to unpack this. We believe the Lord led us to John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. In this particular passage of Scripture, Jesus says love one another three different times. John 13, 34. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now, if he stopped right there, it's powerful, right? I mean, the standard is high if that's all the verse said. But then he, he kind of pours gravy on it with this next statement, right? Look at it. Even as I have loved you. If we weren't overwhelmed with the love one another part of this, now it just seems absolutely unattainable as we read this statement, even as I've loved you. You also love one another. Then verse 35. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Here's what he says there. The defining characteristic of belonging to the family of God is a radical love for each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. He says it's so radical when the world sees that, that's when the world goes, yep, there's something to this thing called the gospel. They see this radical expression of love. Now, what I want to do is ask and answer two questions out of these verses, and I'm going to be done today. Here's the first one. What makes it new? Jesus opens this sentence by saying, 
a new commandment I give to you. And to be honest with you, it really doesn't sound very new, right? I mean, Jesus has already said it once in his teaching. And not only that, when Jesus said it the first time, he was quoting all the way back to the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Let me show it to you. Matthew chapter 22, look on the screen, verse 37. It says, And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So now Jesus shows up in John 13 and says, Hey, let me tell you something new. Never heard this before. Love one another. And I'm sure in some ways they're kind of scratching their head because it doesn't sound very new at all. As a matter of fact, when somebody asked Jesus, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in the world? Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God, and the number two commandment is to love your neighbor. So what makes it new? Let me give you two dynamics this morning that make this a new teaching of Jesus. Number one, Jesus. Jesus makes it new. And here's what I mean by that. Look on the screen. Before we had a law, now we have a life. You see, in the Old Testament law, Moses gave us and defined for us the standard. Here's the standard. Love your neighbor as yourself. But we all know what the law did, right? The law only showed us our inability to live up to God's standard because no matter how hard I tried to keep the law, guess what? We all failed, right? That's why we're all sitting here this morning. We failed at keeping the law of God. There's nothing we could do to earn a right standing before God. The law revealed the standard, but the law showed us our inability to keep that standard. In Jesus, Jesus gives us so much more than a law. Jesus gives us a life. Number one, he gives us a life we can look at. By that I mean when you read the Gospels, Don't just read the Gospels understanding the historicity of what Jesus did. That's very significant. But also as you read the Gospels, you need to read the Gospels looking at the life of Jesus. How did he interact with people? How did he relate to people? How did he love people? How did he serve people? In Jesus, we get to see the law embody. We get to see God's righteous standard fleshed out as a human being in relationships with other people. So Jesus, this is new because he gave us a life that we could examine, that we could look at, and that we could watch. But listen, it's even more than that. Jesus did not just give us a life we can look to. Jesus gave us a life we can live. You see, Jesus did not come simply to be an example for us to follow. Jesus came to give us his very life. The glorious reality of the gospel is that when I surrender the control of my life to Jesus Christ, Jesus comes to live by his spirit inside of me. At the moment of salvation, Christ comes to live in us. And the life that we experience is not just a better us. It is literally Christ 
in us. I want to give you a statement this morning that I hope is life-changing for you. Look at it on the screen. Jesus didn't come to be my helper. Jesus came to be my life. Read that out loud with me. Jesus didn't come to be my helper. Jesus came to be my life. And listen to me, that's not just semantics. That's the difference in relationship and religion. That's the difference in me trying to live for Jesus and Jesus living in and through me. I don't need to say, Lord, I need you to help me today to be strong. I don't need Jesus' help. I need Jesus to be strong in me. Lord, I need you to help me be patient. I don't need his help. You see, asking for help implies I'm bringing something to the table and I just need a little bit of help from Jesus and if Jesus will give me a little bit of help then together we can get over the hump here's the reality I don't bring anything to the table I'm dead to myself I'm dead in my sin I need Christ's life in me and that's the power of the gospel that Christ didn't come to set an example for me to follow Jesus came to live his life through me so when you start talking about this issue when we start talking about this issue of loving one another it's literally not jesus help me to love my brother and sister in christ no it's jesus you love through me like i can't love that's why jesus said in john 13 even as i have loved you Kenneth Wiest is a great Greek scholar. Kenneth Wiest adds this about that particular phrase. Listen to what he said. That phrase is not a simple comparison, but a conformity. It means this love is to be of the same nature. Here's what that means. Jesus is not challenging us to love others like he did. He is challenging us to allow him to love others through us. I hope today that sets you free. I hope today that invites you to dependence on Him. What makes this new is Jesus. It's His life in us. It's not me trying to live for Jesus. It's Jesus living in and through me. So one thing that makes this new is Jesus. Before we had a law, now we have a life. Let me tell you the second thing that makes it new. The church. Before the command was general. Now the command is specific. Before he said, love your neighbor. In Hebrew, the word neighbor means anybody close. It's only dealing with proximity. Whoever happens to be around you at the time, that's who you're to love. Jesus said, love one another. It is not de-emphasizing the reality that we are to love our neighbor. We're to love everybody. But it is elevating the dynamic kind of love that is supposed to exist inside of the family of God. This phrase, one another, is used exclusively in the New Testament to refer to the family 
of God. You see, Jesus came not only to give us his life, but he gave birth to a community where we are to live out that life in fellowship with others called the church. I want to put a definition up on the screen. We used it last weekend. What is a church? Look at it. It's a local community of baptized Jesus followers uniting together under biblical leadership to share in the mission of Christ. That's the church. And here's what Jesus is saying. As we come together as the church and we demonstrate the kind of love that can only be explained as Jesus and us. I mean, look around you. This is a diverse place. The world would look at us and say, we don't fit together, right? But we're able to love each other. Why? Because of Christ in us and the ground being level at the foot of the cross. And when the world sees that, Jesus says, by this, all Men will know that you're my disciple, that you've experienced my gospel. As we live this out, it authenticates and displays the power of the gospel to the watching world. Listen to the way Rick Warren describes it. He said, Jesus said our love for each other, not our doctrinal beliefs, is our greatest witness to the world. When we come together in love as a church family from different backgrounds, race, and social status, it is a powerful witness to the world. So we are to love one another to the degree that the defining characteristic of our fellowship should be love for one another. Now, not just the kind of love we're trying to create, but literally His love towards us and in us and through us. So that begs a second question. If the defining mark of our relationship is to be love for one another that is His love in us, here's the question. How does He love us? And let me go ahead and say to you this morning that the answer to that question is infinite, all right? Now, if that doesn't translate for you, let me say it another way. If I was going to unpack that question in totality, this would be a really long sermon, all right? There's no way in one message we're going to unpack how Jesus loves us. But what I want to try to do is from about a 30,000-foot view, I want to draw some examples of how He loves us, and then let's look at what it looks like for that kind of love to be manifested in us towards other people. So here's the first one. He loves us initially. Here's what that means. He chose to love you before you loved him. Read that out loud with me. He chose to love you before you loved I want you to read it again, but I want to make it personal. Where it says, you there, the first time we're going to say me, the second time we're going to say I. All right, you ready? One, two, three. He chose to love me before I loved him. He loved you first. He loved you by choice. 
me show it to you in the Bible. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. It says, In this is love. Not that we love God. As a matter of fact, we were just the opposite. We were running from God. We were trying to find satisfaction in anything but God. We were trying to let our lives revolve around everything in place of God. The Bible says, you want to you talk about love? And this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now jump down to verse 19. It says, we love because He first loved us. Here's what that means. The only way you and I can love Him is in response. The only way we can love Him is in response. The word love that's used here in 1 John is the Greek word agapeo. It's that highest expression of love. It's a love that we often describe as God's love. Let me give you a definition of that word love here that's used in 1 John. It's finding one's joy in something as an act of the will. And therein lies a big disconnect we have with this principle. Because in our culture... We define love as a feeling. Well, I can be in love one minute and then out of love the next minute. I, I don't love this person anymore. We're, we're talking about a feeling. Well, I had a feeling and now the feeling is gone. Now, when you stop loving somebody, according to the Scriptures, here's what that means. You've stopped choosing to love them. Love is not a feeling. Love is a choice and displayed upon us by God. It is God's sovereign choice to love us first. Here's the reality. We did not earn the love of God. We did not deserve the love of God. We did not gain the love of God. We did not discover the love of God. But God in His sovereignty chose to display His love for us even when we were unlovable. He loved us initially. Now, if you're having a hard time wrapping your head around that, let me show it to you in the Bible. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, look what it says. It says, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Let me tell you what that means. A really long time ago, right? Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. 
that ought to overwhelm you today. You say, Pastor, please explain that. Listen, there have been theological divisions taking place for centuries around all that that means. But let me tell you what it means at its core. Before you ever loved God, before there was ever the first twinkle of a star in the sky, before time had ticked one second off the clock, God in his sovereignty had chosen to make you an object of his love. Not because I was lovable, not because I was likable. He chose to love us. He loves us initially. Now, what does that look like towards one another? Well, let me give you some applications of that. First of all, it means that we should choose to love each other. Can we be real honest for a minute? Everybody all right with that? If you're all right with that, nod your head at me. Because I'm telling you, it's about to get real honest, okay? There are some people in the family of God that are harder to love than others. Well, don't, don't look at them. Don't make eye contact with them right now. That would be disastrous, all right? Because as soon as I said it, you know who came to your mind, right? I told you it's about to get real. It's about to get honest. I mean, let's just get real honest, all right? Some of you this morning are sitting where you're sitting because by nature, we tend to avoid people like that, right? Oh, it just got quiet. Some of you go to the small group that you go to because some of those other people were in your other small group, and instead of choosing to love, you chose to jetpack out, right? You see, when we're loving as Christ loved us, we love by choice. Not because somebody's likable. Not because somebody's lovable. Not because somebody has loved us. We choose to love as an act of the will. I know what you're thinking. <laughs> Pastor, I can't do that. Hey, listen, you're right. And that's not what he expects of us. He's not saying, here's the law, you go do it. Here's what he's saying. I've come to love through you in a way you can't love left to yourself. The kind of love that he's describing, this, this kind of initial 
chosen love for other people, this love that is volitional and of our will, is not the kind of love that we have naturally. But as we depend on Jesus, guess what? It is the kind of love that he has. And let me tell you how I know that. Because I've been the recipient of it. He loved me when I wasn't lovable. He loved me when I wasn't even likable. He loved me when I rebelled against him. He chose to love me. And that same God who loved me like that now lives in me and wants to love other people just like that through me. I can't do it, but he can as I live in dependence on him. So who in this church do you need to choose to love? Who in your small group do you need to choose to love? You see, my inability to love somebody really says more about my relationship with Jesus than it does my relationship with them. Because as I'm living out of the overflow of my relationship with Him, guess what? He'll love them through me. And if I'm having trouble loving them, it's really not about them. It's about me and Him. Because I've become an obstacle to the love that Jesus desires to manifest. I've become the dam blocking that, that flow of His love into the life of somebody else. We're to take the initiative. We're not to wait on somebody else to love us first. It's initial. Let me give you a second one. He loved us sacrificially. By that I mean he laid down his life for you. I mean, isn't that the whole core of the gospel? The core message of the gospel is that God so loved us that he gave his only begotten son. Listen to the way Romans 5, 8 says it. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. The word demonstrate in the Greek language, it's a compound word. It's two words put together. Here are the two words. To place or to put and then in front of. Here's what it literally says. Here's how God put his love right in front of you. Right in your face. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet Trying to be good people? No. What does it say? Sinners. Christ died for us. The core message of the gospel is that Christ laid down his life for you and me. Our salvation was purchased by his sacrifice for us on the cross. The cross was not just a great example of love. The cross was the only means by which we could experience the love of God. Christ atoned for our sins on the cross. That's why 1 John writes it this way in 1 John 3. 
He says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. He makes that leap from his love to our love for each other. Let me read it to you in the message paraphrase of the Bible. Look at the way Eugene Peterson describes this verse, 1 John 3, 16. He said, this is how we've come to understand and experience love. Christ sacrificed his life for us. This is why we ought to live sacrificially for our fellow believers and not just be out for ourselves. What does this look like in our one another relationship? How do we sacrifice to love? Let me ask you a couple of questions. First of all, how are you sacrificing your time to be with, to do life with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Somebody said that the greatest way to spell love is T-I-M-E. How are you sacrificing time to be with? You see, small groups is not just a program in our church where we meet together to study the Bible. Small groups provides us a platform to sacrifice time to be with our brothers and sisters in Christ to demonstrate the love of Jesus with them. Are you sacrificing time to be with an individual and disciple them in their faith, to walk along with them, to pour into them what's been poured into you? Am I loving one another by sacrificing time to be with, to invest in, to do life with? Or am I so busy doing my thing that I don't have time? The church is only this event that I attend. I don't don't have time to invest in relationships. Let me ask you another question. Am I sacrificing my gifts and abilities and talents to serve my brothers and sisters in Christ? You see, we all want the blessing of when the crisis situation's happening in our family or the dramatic situation's playing out in our relationship or the situation comes up at our job. We all want the church to be ready And to have people ready to connect, to meet those needs, to minister to those needs. But when I'm loving one another, I'm just not on the receiving end of that blessing. I'm sacrificing time. I'm sacrificing skill, ability, and talent to engage in being part of the meeting of those needs. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks. But that's loving. All these other things flow out of this attitude of loving one another. He loved us sacrificially. Let me give you a third one. We've got to move on through these. He loved us unconditionally. Here's what that means. He'll never stop loving you no matter what. I don't know how that hits you, but that absolutely overwhelms me. That There's not one thing I can do today that will change the way God loves me. He absolutely loves me unconditionally. Listen to the way Paul wrote about it in the book of Romans. 
Who will separate us from the love of Christ? For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is found in Christ Jesus. I love that little phrase, any other created thing. Did you know that all of us in the room were all created things? You know what that means, right? We can't even separate ourselves from the love of God, which is found in Christ Jesus. There's not one thing. My, his love for me today is not rooted in my performance. His love for me is not based on who I am. Listen, His love for me is based on who He is. Isn't that awesome? Well, how does that flesh out here? And our relationships with one another. Here's how it fleshes out. Our love for one another is not based on how they treat me. It's based on who they are in Christ. You see, we're not just to love those who love us. Anybody can do that. The world has no problem doing that. It's loving those who are unlovable. Loving those who mistreat us. It's an unconditional quality of love. Unconditional love means you don't leave when you get your feelings hurt. Unconditional love means I love you regardless of how you treat me. Just real candidly for a moment. And I'm sharing this with you today from a broken heart. It's something that's just on me right now. There is a, a serious issue in the church in Las Vegas. It's really all over America.